again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I continue my discussion on Molinism, and I'm joined by Owen Pond, a fellow podcaster from the Christus Victor Network. If you'd like to check out his work, head on over to the ChristusVictorNetwork.com and look up either Ask a Millennial Christian or his other show, Memento Mori, Theology in the Walking Dead. While you're there, why not also look at our friend Nicholas Bersese's podcast, Theosophy Pod, for some other really great material. Again, if you enjoy the content that we offer you here on the Freed Thinker podcast, please consider sponsoring us. You can do that by either finding us on Patreon or by clicking the Become a Sponsor link on the blog to go to the Podbean crowdsourcing page. We'd really appreciate it. And if you don't or can't support the show financially but still want to help us out, please review and rate us on iTunes. The more five-star reviews we get, the better that the show shows up on the iTunes search function. So we really, really appreciate it. Okay, with that business out of the way, listen in now as Owen and I take off the gloves in handling what we think are some fatal flaws of Molinism and why it really is a problematic theological position to hold. Enjoy the show. So, Owen, thank you so much for joining me on The Freed Thinker. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. All right. So, Owen, we are, as you know, you're part two of this series uh, on, on Molinism. Um, before, before we jump in and we give a, um, a definition of Molinism, because this, this probably should have been part one, <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, but before we, we uh, dive in and do an, an, um, uh, a definition of Molinism and start interacting with it, what did you think of uh, part one, dealing with Craig? Yeah, I I thought it was important. I mean, William Lane Craig is one of the most, if not the most prominent apologists, at least on the American evangelical scene. And this is a huge part of his theology that underpins everything he talks about. So I think it's very worth examining the assumptions that go into his apologetic. Yeah, especially since he's he's such a huge influence on so many um, apologists. I mean, I I use him for, for a lot of things, just not this. I mean, I think other than like Ravi Zacharias, I think those are probably the, the two biggest names out there. I, I think everyone else, no offense, is kind of in terms of popularity, a step below that. So it's absolutely. And like you said, he's kind of the apologist apologist, right? Everyone who aspires to be an apologist, this is sort of the 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 guiding um, schematic. And, and, and it's, that's fine. I mean, there's there's, you know, people who are influential in things and he's he's influential for a reason. I remember the first time I saw a clip of his debate, it must have been from the 80s or something because it was terrible quality and uh, his hair wasn't gray. He and, still had his beard. 
He still had his beard. Yeah, it was about、um, the things that science can't prove, right? Science can't prove the scientific method and love. And I was, it was amazing. I, I was like, well, this this is definitely someone I want to listen to more of. Yeah, good.、Um, well, to start off, why don't you give me、um, what the definition of Molinism is? Maybe not, maybe not a definition, but what is it? What is the theological position of Molinism? So my understanding would be, and I'm not reading a definition here. I am going off of、uh, just off the cuff, but it's the idea that God has something called middle knowledge, and this middle knowledge means that God basically chose to create this particular world with this particular set of circumstances because He knew that it would lead to these particular actions. And so I'm sure we'll get into middle knowledge and whether or not that's unique to Molinism, but it, it certainly seems to be the operating phrase that they use. And if my understanding is correct, it's named after、uh, a Jesuit priest in the Counter Reformation, Molina, who who sort of came up with this、uh, in response to the Calvinistic apologetic of the Reformation. And that's not to say that it's wrong because a Jesuit priest came up with it, just to put it in its historical context. And it's sort of、uh, reemerged recently. But the whole idea is to get around the critique. Of fatalism, of determinism, of God choosing not only choosing this world, but choosing to give us the desires that we have. Yeah, and and middle knowledge is this idea that God has all true counterfactual knowledge. So、um, he he knows everything that not just everything that is, but he knows everything that would be in every other logically possible world. Um, not that there are, it, it doesn't think that there are actual, real, parallel universes or anything like that. But, but it, it, at every point, it, it, God knows what would happen had something else been different, and that's kind of what what middle knowledge is. So that that's what's confusing to me because it's often held up as the focal turning point or or defining feature of Molinism, and that just seems to me like I think that any view of omniscience would have that right. Doesn't God know what I would do? Yeah, I, that, I mean that that's one of my critiques. Um, that I gave in the last show is that the reject my rejection of Molinism has very little to do with middle knowledge. Actually,、um, it, it's their it's their conception of middle knowledge because、um, traditionally under the Reformed view, we're going to say that God knows all true things because He's decreed them. So His His omniscience is rooted in His decrees.、Um, so we're going to say their understanding of middle knowledge、um, is is、um, is ill formed because it's kind of like God. I know Arminians hate the he looked down the corridors of time, but the, you know this this the, the Molinistic conception of middle knowledge is that God looks down all of the corridors of all to, all possible times、um, to see you, you know to, to 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 know what would happen and what we would freely choose in any given circumstance、um, that that would be possible in any possible world. And the strange thing here, it seems like. I have middle knowledge to some degree. I know what I would do given a certain condition. At least I know what I think I would do. And it seems if I have that sort of conditional middle knowledge to a limited degree, certainly God has it to a greater degree. If only because He knows He knows me even better than I know myself. So it seems to me like this is completely a non-controversial point. Yeah, my issue is not really with with middle knowledge. I, I think there are problems with how they understand middle knowledge,、um, but for me, the problem is what they do with it.、Um, because for for the Molinist,、um, they're they're going to say, and, and and Molinism is trying to answer two questions, right? Like you said, it's trying to it's trying to answer the question,、uh, basically trying to to reconcile、um, uh, divine sovereignty and human freedom,、um, and it wants to defend a, a version of human freedom known as libertarian. Freedom of the will, which means basically、um, that nothing impedes 
that 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 nothing that, that we are that we are free in all circumstances to do either A or not A. We can we can act or we cannot act. We we are we are undetermined. Um, it, it is indeterminate what we will freely choose. That God is not um, you know pushing our pushing us around and causing us in any way to to choose what we choose. Um, so that, that's on the one hand, they're trying to reconcile sovereignty and, and this concept of, of libertarian human freedom. The other thing is, it, it, and this is why it's coming to apologetics, is that they're trying to answer things like the problem of evil. Um, and one of the things, one of one of the solutions that people pose, like Alvin Plantinga, is um, that one of the the reasons why God allows evil and suffering is because human freedom is of such a good that in order to have a, a, a world of, of truly free people, um, it might be logically necessary um, to, to have at least the possibility of uh, evil and pain and suffering and, and all of those kinds of things. And so um, Molinism is, is an attempt to say, to defend that, um, not just as a hypothetical, but to defend, well, that actually is one of God's um, potential reasons for, for, for allowing the, the amount of evil and suffering that we observe in the world. Just when you frame it that way, and and people may criticize that, but that seems pretty fair to me. When it's framed that way, it certainly seems like it's the product of humanism, of the Enlightenment. It almost seems like this theology never would have even been considered before uh, the emancipation of, of of human freedom in our you know intellectual discourse. Does, does that does that make sense? It, it seems to me very rooted in that particular context. Um. Well. Y- Yes and no. I mean, I think I think the concept of libertarian freedom goes all. I mean, we're we're one of my my condemnations of Molinism is that it entails semi Pelagianism, um, which which I think has a concept of um, libertarian freedom uh, somewhere uh, back in there, and that goes that goes all the way back to at least the time of Augustine and before. So uh, I'm not sure it's directly rooted there, um, but that but that might be why it has a, kind of a strong resurgence. Um, especially in apologetics following the Enlightenment. Well, right now, in, 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 this, in our context, I would say that the most damning accusation one can make in America against Calvinism is that it's deterministic. And so yeah, this, and- this would seem to be, be able to answer the most uh, damaging accusation. Yeah, and that and that's you know part of that is because again coming from the world of apologetics, um, that's one of the major objections to atheism. Right, because because on atheism, um, it's hard to explain how anything isn't you know chemically determined, and that that free will is just an illusion. But the problem is, is that that on atheism, you don't you don't just have uh, determinism. I mean, you have hard determinism. You have you have at downright fideism uh, on on um, on that type of naturalistic materialism. Whereas on Calvinism, again, from the last episode, um, you you might have a kind of divine determinism. Uh, you you could have compatibilism. There there's other ways where you don't have this kind of hard theistic fideism um, at the root, and so. Even if, you know, well, not even if Calvinism is a form of determinism, um, it, it's not quite the same thing. And so, but Molinists seem to think it is that if you have any type of determinism, well, then you have, you know, the, and this was part of Craig's article, you, you have the complete abandonment of, of human, uh, human responsibility for sin, and you have God as the, 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 the cause of evil, and you have the, our, our world is just an illusion of freedom and all that kind of stuff. When, when really it just comes back to, well, then you just don't understand the form position. You don't really understand compatibilism where, no, I I have a will, I act. It's just not in a libertarian sense. Well, could you actually give three quick definitions? One, fideism, and then get into the difference between compatibilism and libertarian free will, because I know that's another one of the turning points for Molinism. 
Yeah, so fideism is kind of like a. I mean, it's just it's so it's it's such a robotic form of determinism. Uh, I mean, literally, literally, it would be an illusion. We wouldn't actually be having uh, re- any type of real free choices what i mean our our will wouldn't be acting whatsoever we wouldn't have a will we would be little little robots just just following programming um there'd be no there'd be no freedom whatsoever i mean this is uh fideism is beyond hyper calvinism uh compatibilism is going to say well the the basically it gets its term because it finds a way to make compatible uh divine sovereignty and human freedom by saying well uh god's god's decrees uh, uses our freedom, and and th- and this is why some people think Molinism is um, Calvinistic to some degree. Um, that God's decrees uses our free choices as uh, part of the means by which God accomplishes His decrees. That is, He He decrees the ends and the means, um, but that we freely choose um, in line with uh, in line with God's uh, decrees. Part of that's going to go back to you know the the understanding of our nature. Are we in a dead nature, um, or are we in a regenerated nature and the nature that God determines for us to have um, influences how we uh, choose to either repent and believe uh, or to exercise our sin. So that's compatibilism. Libertarian freedom is going to say, well, you know, God doesn't push our buttons at all uh, because that would be a violation of our will. God would actually be doing violence against our will um, and that our will has to be uh, unencumbered for us to have any type of real sense of freedom. Um, and so they're going to say, well, and this is going to be a critique that we're going to hit to in a little bit. They're going to say, well, God doesn't, um, God doesn't violate our wills in that way. <clears throat> you know, there might be an instant here and there throughout Revelation or, or, or throughout history where God has to intervene and do this one thing like with Nebuchadnezzar or something like that. Uh, but that, that's, that's the rarity. That's not the rule. Um, I mean, you're, you're going to have people like Craig that's going to say, well, e- you know, um, even God's middle knowledge, um, God didn't actually harden Pharaoh's heart in history. He determined that, you know, Pharaoh's heart would be hardened because uh, he knew that that Pharaoh would freely harden his own heart. It just gets really convoluted pretty quickly. But he's not even going to say that that God um, was actively violating the will of Pharaoh in that case. Um, so that that's kind of um, liber- libertarian freedom on the other side. And. I- I think you touched on that atheism, the atheistic worldview or a materialistic worldview is actually the, the the most that would be under fideism, right? Because sort of in that worldview, there is no soul, there is no mind. The mind is simply what the brain does, the functions of your of your neurochemistry. And if the world was set in motion at the Big Bang or, you know, contracting, expanding, whatever, but there's a series of events and those are all causally determined by the the laws of nature and there is nothing outside of this harsh mechanistic uh brutal reaction that could in theory all be we're just not smart enough yet or we haven't figured out all the laws yet but literally from one single point in time if we know all of the things that are happening we can predict everything that follows after would that be a fair critique of the atheistic worldview yeah, I think so. Because, I mean, like you said, we just don't, we're not smart enough to figure it out. But if we knew all the formulas, if we knew all the math, if we knew all the trajectories, if we know at any given point where every, where every you know, atom and molecule and how much energy was there and what type of kinetic energy was there and all that kind of stuff to go along with it, we could come up with this really, you know, complex, convoluted you know, equation and, 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 uh, and framework to, to basically to know with absolute certainty 
what would happen 10 billion years from now because um, it, it's just a, a completely mechanistic um, naturalistic system there there's there's no there's no volition whatsoever um, and and even you know the illusion of our choosing um, because we don't have an immaterial mind that that's altering anything. Um, it, it's it's really just kind of the the outworking of the chemical reactions in our brain, um, which are also determined by chemical reactions, you know, elsewhere. And, and we could have figured that all out from the Big Bang. Um, it, you know, everything our 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 minds, our intentionality, everything is is just a, an illusion um, to us. We are there. There is no ghost in the machine. It's just the machine. So instead of pointing that out in atheistic discussions, which would be one route to take, often Christians feel the need to defend, instead of attacking their worldview for being absolutely deterministic, we feel the need to defend ours as not being deterministic. Is that what you've seen in your debates or or in that wider community? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that comes up quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, there, um, there's a, James White did a really good episode recently um, on. Uh, is it, I was I always forget it's, it's the dividing line now, right? He changed it from alpha and omega. Yeah. Yeah, so um, it, you know he did one recently where he compared um, a debate between Frank Turek uh, and David Silver, and him and David Silver, and, and how they both kind of answered from their different apologetical methods um, the problem of evil specifically, and that that's a kind of a good um, case study for how um, you know a classic uh, it's it's a, it cal- classical apologetics um, is different than kind of a presuppositional apologetics and, um, how they would answer those differently. And, and, and James White, basically, you know, David Silver didn't quite know what to do because James White basically said, yeah, God, God is sovereign. <laughs> God decreed. Yes. Yes. That, that is correct. Um, and, and it really just kind of deflated David Silver's, uh, objections, um, from, from evil and suffering. So, um, yeah, it's a very, it's a very different, um, the, the biblical approach to these issues is very different than what kind of falls under, uh, classical apologetics in these ways. Um, so I want to, I want to go back to, so, so we've, we've kind of established what Molinism is, what some of these different views, and, and again, you know, these are, these are from 30,000 feet. We only have about an hour or so, um, but I want to go into some of the the criticisms um, of Molinism and, and and some of the problems um, that that we find with it um, because I, I've been I've been pretty vocal in my condemnation of Molinism um, in the fact that I think Molinism, if you take it to its logical end, entails either semi Pelagianism. Um, and or because I think sometimes semi Pelagianism entails open theism, um, but I, and or uh, open theism. If you take it to its logical end, or to escape those, you you have to hold it in co- incoherent understanding, anyways. Um, which I think, and you know, Molinism can be reduced to basically the compatibilism that it wants to deny. But rather than a biblical compatibilism, you get this kind of weird, uh, ad hoc, metaphysical compatibilism that that we'll talk about based on these, you know, uh, unbiblical concepts of many worlds and and things like that. So um, what what do you think before we get started? What do you think of those types of those types of um, uh, evaluations of Molinism? I think I'm I'm looking forward to teasing out why you think it leads to open theism or semi-Pelagianism. But my experience is that it is an incoherent uh, worldview. It's an incoherent apologetic. I I completely agree with that. And that's how I see people holding it specifically. 
it just doesn't seem you know my my problem here comes down to libertarian free will and maybe i would have the same issues with an arminian's perspective on libertarian free will but since it's just held up in molinism as the the crux of the whole system it, it seems to me that you can't hold to that libertarian free will and have god choosing which world to actualize uh, and then say that you're not in some way deterministic. So th- that's my perspective. But I, I, why do you think that it leads to either semi-Pelagianism or open theism if it's held consistently, which it's generally not? Sure. Sure. So, yeah, I, I think it leads to semi-Pelagianism um, in, in, and first and foremost because it undermines the gospel. Um, I mean, we can – I have some of these laid out based on what I think is most severe to least severe – this one I think is most severe. I think Molinism actually undermines the gospel. And there's going to be a lot of my fellow apologists out there who are, who are you know, be, going to be screaming and throwing their iPods out the window. Um, but remember, going back, part of this is that, that, um, that God kind of looks down all of these corridors of time of all these possible worlds. He sees who would repent and believe, right? And only then does he determine to save them by actualizing the world. Because remember, Molinism, one of the things that they're trying to do is trying to answer all of the, the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. Um, and, and they're trying to say, well, God brings about the world that, that, has, that, that brings the most people to saving faith, right? That's the world that he brings about. Um, I have other no, issues with that being too human-centric, where it's where it's about human salvation and not glory to God. But um, that that's that's kind of a different issue. Sorry, now is that something? is that definitional to Molinism that the reason that the reason he chose this world is because this is the world in which the most people are saved? Is that definitional, or is that just commonly held right now? I'm not sure if it's definitional. It's definitely the most common view that's held now. Um, that's Craig's view, um, and and you know where Craig goes, typically Molinism goes, <laughs> um, or or a Mol- an individual Molinist will go. So um, they they might say things like, "Well, um, God chose to actualize the world that brings Him the most glory, but the world that brings Him the most glory is the world that has the most um, people saved. Um, so therefore, the world that He chooses to bring about is the one that has the most people being saved." Well, you know, it's, that actually sounds to me like that has the influences of American fundamentalism as well. Soul winning, that the most important thing is the number of people saved. I mean, that's my background. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying, again, that seems to me very clearly um, dealing with a problem that that is coming from a particular stream of Christianity. And the reason I'm pointing this out is that, like, I, I hate to be pedantic here, but this isn't based on, on theology. I don't see people citing verses for why... This is the way that God chose to do. It's just this. These are these are cultural critiques of Christianity, and we've come up with a with an apologetic to those cultural critiques, irrespective of the text. It's almost like it's. And you may, I may be borrowing this phrase from you. It's an apologetic seeking of theology. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely it, it, it's it's my my criticism has always been that it that it's a that it's a philosophy that backs its way into biblical theology rather than vice versa. Um, so, so what happens is because, because it, you know, whether or not that for them, the end game is the most glory to God, the, the world that's chosen is the world that brings typically is the world that brings most salvation to most people. And so God kind of looks down all the corridors of all the, of all time, of all the possible worlds, sees who would repent and believe in, in, in the given circumstances in that world and chooses to actualize that world. And so he determines to save those people in that world uh, who he foresees will repent and believe. The problem with this, I mean, there's multiple problems with this, but the main problem with this is that that means that our salvation is directly conditioned by what God foresees that we will do, right? It is literally uh, 
that, that, that we cause God to choose us by first choosing him. And by first, I mean logically prior, because there is no time yet, so we can't be talking about temporally prior. Logically prior, that, that, it's, that, it's our, that, God, that, that God foreknows that we will choose him, and so therefore, he chooses us in that world. Um, so, so our repentance and our faith is no longer the means by which God saves us, but they're actually determinative. They are, they are the cause for why God saves us, which just is semi-Pelagianism. God, God, you know, semi-Pelagian, it's not all out Pelagianism. You, you still need, you know, it's, it's synergistic. You still need God's salvation. Um, it's still not going to be like an all out works righteousness type of thing, but it still has us as the, the determinative cause for why God saves us. And that's why it's semi-Pelagianism. Okay. So explain to me a little bit why... So when you say that undermines the gospel, I think we need to establish what is the gospel. Because it seems to me if the gospel is Christ died for, for your sins, um, repent and believe and, and you'll get eternal life, that, this doesn't seem to clash with that on the surface. But I think there are certain assumptions underneath it that you have from, from your theological worldview that would clarify a little bit on what the gospel is. And it's not just the fact that Christ died, and then we get to choose to appropriate that salvation for us, right? Because if that's the gospel, then I don't really see how this clashes with that. That's fine. Christ died. His blood covered my sin. There's a free offer made. I get to choose whether to accept that or not. And then if God foreknows whether I choose, that really doesn't matter because, the, you know, the the... The, the blood is there whether I choose to apply it or not. Yeah, so so part of the part of our understanding of the gospel is that that you could not save yourself, that you were that you were actually dead in your sins and trespasses, that 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 you had that you had nothing to contribute um, to to your salvation. That is entirely uh, an act of God from beginning to end. I mean, this this goes into um, the Ordo Salutis or the Order of Salvation in, in in Reformed theology. It goes all the way back to you know the the idea that it is from before the foundations of the world um, that God. God chose us in Jesus Christ, um, and there and there's no mention in there of well, God chose us because we first chose Him. Uh, I mean, every aspect of the New Testament is the reverse of that. It's that it's that we repent and and faith because God first chose us. God first reached out to us. God first. I mean, under under. Calvinism and the Reformed faith, um, God actually regenerated us so that we can't even respond with faith. Um, but even bracketing off that concern, the the entire movement um, is from God towards us. Um, we are we are dead in the water, and it's God who rescues us. So Molinism just reverses that arrow of causation. And when you say that faith it becomes the determining factor instead of the means, how how does that play out? Sure. So, uh, um, under Reformed theology and under Calvinism, um, faith. So th- this is this is part of the problem when you're debating with Arminians and Molinists and everything is. And, th- and this came up in in Craig's article um, when he cited D. A. Carson's, and he says, "Look, there's all of these verses that show humans choosing things. We have real choice. We really choose things, right?" The Calvinist is going to say, "Yeah." Duh, we have a will. We choose things. There's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. The you know we the I I have no problem with saying yes. I, I turned uh, and, and my will repented and exercised faith and trust in God. The question is whether or not I could do that on my own without uh, God's regenerative uh, effects of the Spirit. 
right? So, so if I am, if I am, um, if I am Lazarus, if I'm dead in the grave, if I'm dead in the tombstone, um, if Jesus is just, if, if he's merely saying Jesus, or, you know, Lazarus come out, Lazarus come out. He's not doing anything to Lazarus. He's saying, Lazarus come out, right? If I'm dead, can I respond in, in, in faith and trust and, and actually, oh, you know, Jesus is calling me. I need to get up and get up. No, I'm, I'm, I'm dead. I, I, I am no longer. My, my will is deadened um, to God. I cannot turn and, and repent in faith. And so we're going to say, well, God actually regenerates our nature, right? So when, when Jesus is calling, um, uh, you know, his, his words actually have effect. They actually revive, regenerate um, Lazarus from the dead so that Lazarus can respond um, and, and actually uh, obey and, and come out. And so this is what we're going to say, that when, when the gospel is preached, um, that it, it is the power of God into salvation, where God actually, by the gospel, um, regenerates us, and then we are saved through our repentance and faith, right? But it's just now that our will is free to exercise repentance and faith. But repentance and faith is still the means by which that salvation is, a, is appropriated to us, right? It's still, it's still, it's still the conduit that, that, that achieves our salvation. Whereas under this Molinistic scheme, under semi-Pelagianism, it's actually our faith and repentance that causes God to choose this world, right? Under Molinism, remember, he's, he's choosing a world based on how many people he foresees exercising faith. And so it's our faith that actually caused God to choose this world and therefore determine those who are going to be saved in this world. So it's actually our faith that's determinative for why God saves who he saves. So this is, uh, you know, it took me a while to sort of put, to get my mind around this, but is it fair to say the long version is we are saved by grace through faith. Faith doesn't act, faith doesn't save us in the ultimate sense. Faith is the means through which we are saved. It's grace which saves us. But in the shorthand, we often say we're saved by faith, by faith alone. Uh, but but the actual when you when you look at the process, it's we're saved by grace through faith. And so in the Reformed understanding, it's God, God's grace which saves us, and we are given that we're regenerated, and then it's through faith that that grace is applied to us, versus a worldview like this where it actually is, no, but they would say, they would say it isn't. They would still say you're saved by grace through faith. But then why is it that God chooses or looks and sees who's going to have faith he doesn't give them faith. He sees who has faith in a given set of circumstances, and then based on that faith, he decides to grant grace. W- would that be correct? Yes, I think that's I think that's correct. Okay. Well, then here's my question. If this is supposed to sort of get God off of the hook for being unfair in choosing who's saved and who's not, could it be possible that there is there's there are multiple sets of worlds, and in one of these sets of worlds, uh, Owen Pond decides to believe the gospel, put his faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Because of the circumstances that I was in, the conditions, I was led to a point in my life where I freely decide to do this. Now, there's another possible world where perhaps I was born into a, well, I guess I wouldn't be born into a different family, but I would be born into a different economic status or a different location where I would not freely choose to put my faith in Christ for salvation. And so there are different possible worlds, one in which I am saved and one in which I am not saved. Correct. 
Yeah. Th- so so then, let me let me actually so let me actually add something to this. This might be kind of an aside, and it is it is a little kind of a cheeky way to summarize um, uh, Will and Lane Craig's position. But Will and Lane Craig, when he's asked the question of what happens to those who have never heard the gospel. Um, he, he like doubles down on Molinism at that point. Uh, and, and he basically says, okay, well, well, you know, God, God actually can kind of rearrange the puzzle pieces, so to speak. And so, um, all those people that are, that are in those areas that have never heard the gospel, it doesn't really matter because those are the people who would never have believed given any circumstance, any place, any time in the world. Right, and so that—that's kind of where God piles up those people that no matter what happens, they would never believe, right? So, so we'll get back to your question in a second. I, you know, I, I always kind of just I itch to point this out because this is just this is so bad. This is so unbiblical an idea of anthropology um, where it, it's almost like I don't do apologetics with the cult, so I could I could be mixing up which cult. I can't remember if it's the Mormons. Um, or it's the Jehovah's Witnesses that, that believe that basically we were eternally, uh, seminally present. So, like we're these little like blocks um, that pre-existed uh, and God just put us in, you know, into the womb of the person where we were supposed to be born. And so this, this concept's almost like that where it's like God has like all of these little pieces uh, that, that, that he, you know, if he puts them here, they wouldn't believe. And he puts them here, they wouldn't believe. And he, and he kind of goes down the line and sees, you know, oh, there's, there's no... But, by the way, no Molinist is going to say that God actually experiments and like learns. So, that, you know, don't, don't take that too literally. They're going to say he knows, uh, you know, uniquely uh, based on his omniscience. But just to illustrate, so he kind of takes them all and they don't believe anywhere. And so he just, you know, puts them on, on Guam in the first century where they're never going to hear the gospel anyways. Right? Those are all the people who would never believe. Um, which is just such an unbiblical view uh, of, of, of the human and it's also, I think, just a weird view of a human because that's that. I don't even know what it means to say God could take me and put me somewhere else because me, you know, what it means to be Tyler Vela just is my historically contingent situation, um, which is is. I just I just think it's bizarre to 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 try to treat it the other way. Well, I, I almost got caught in that trap myself by saying I could have been born in a different family. I couldn't have. If I had two different parents, I wouldn't be me. I would be someone else. Yeah, you'd, you'd be, you know, different different genetics, different upbringing, different, you'd be a completely different person. I mean, that, that's like saying, that, that literally, that, that's like saying I could be you if God just, you know, <laughs> put me under your parents. And that's and that's in a very clear cut and dry sense, but I, I think it's equally true. It's just more difficult to see if I were born in a different city or town or state or country, or uh, if my family had more money or less money. Uh, I, I still would be different on a qualitative level. Yeah, it's and it's just such a it's such a weird um, it's such such a weird view, and, I, and I'm not sure why people um, have kind of glommed onto it so much. Um, so, so well, that's, why do you? Why do you say that's an unbiblical anthropology that, that Craig has there? Uh, because I think that 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 the, the the Bible has the the integrity of the human. I mean that that we are um, that we are made in the image of God. That we are distinct um, creations. That we're not these little interchangeable, you know, eternally past building blocks. I mean, the the other problem is is that it kind of makes God react it like like there are these building blocks and he has no control of them like he's he he does he does the best that he can with what he's got right like 
No, God is the creator. Like God made the building block. Even, even if there were, even if we were right. these little building blocks, God made the building blocks, right? So it doesn't get him off the hook because why would God make these building blocks that would never believe in any? Like is he is he not is God not omnipotent enough to make building blocks that would always freely choose to believe, right? So it, 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 it's just it's just so bizarre on so many levels. I think. Also, I think from a biblical perspective, does not Romans 1 say that we've all rejected God? And so that's sort of the, I mean, that that gets you back into the whole original sin and, and how depraved are we really and how able are we to choose. But on a fundamental level, we would say that we are all those people who would never believe in God, no matter what the circumstances or conditions, unless God uh, reaches in and changes our heart. Right, because we we all have after Adam, we all have a dead in nature. We're all dead to God, and 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 God, you know, doesn't isn't obligated to give anyone mercy. And is this then where? Because I know there's a famous quote by William Lane Craig where he says that God has to play with the cards that he's dealt. Like, what does that mean? Yeah, I I don't know if that, is that Craig. I don't think that that's Craig. Um, I, I thought it was, but we can we can fact check that later. Uh, yeah, but let's let, let's fact check. I, I don't want to ascribe that to him. That that. I've listened to enough of Craig that that doesn't sound like something that Craig would say, but that might sound, that does sound like maybe someone who is, I think that's an accurate summation, really, if we, if push comes to shove uh, of the logical conclusion of what Craig says. Um, I do think that that, that's, that's accurate and that he kind of, you know, he has these human little building blocks and he just kind of has to do the best with, with what he has to get the most out of it. Um, to get the most salvation and the most glory out of what he can, um, which I mean, going back, you know, you and I kind of texted back and forth, and I said, well, one of one of my problems, um, and this this covers you know semi Pelagianism and Arminianism and Molinism with this whole with this whole type of apologetic where it, it tries to get where it tries to answer the problem of evil by saying, well, human freedom is of such a good um, that God could have done it. And, and maybe that means we live in a world where there's just this much suffering, um, there's this much pain, there's this much rebellion, there's this much rejection, um, because this is really the best logical outcome once you have a system of, of free will, right? Which I, I, I'm so, I just think is stupid, right? I can think of, I can, I personally can think of a thousand different ways um, that God could have done it and, and, and it, I have limited knowledge. And so God who's omniscient and omnipotent, I'm sure could have no problem um, creating an Adam and Eve who wouldn't have fallen or uh, an Adam and Eve who would have fallen and instantly uh, repented and, and had all of their progeny repent uh, and exercise um, faith. Be, I mean, I always go back to this. I mean, can can you can you logically imagine a world, right, where all the switches are yes and no, sin or not sin, right? Can you logically pass, imagine a world where everybody freely chose not sin? Yes, which means it's logically possible. Um, so why couldn't God actualize that world? Um, so I, I just I just. I just think it's 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 a bad solution, anyways. Um, trying to to rescue this this really problematic um, solution to the problem of evil, anyways. Well, freedom is is very important in our culture, especially America. Being American, freedom is part of the narrative of who we are as a people, who we are as individuals, and and a lot of that is rooted in Christianity, right? The the idea being that the the best way for people to reach. Um, God is freedom. Leave them free to to choose their own consciences, to not be bound by 
uh, a state church that forces them into things. Like these are part of the roots of why our country was founded the way it is. Of course, it's drifted a little bit from that. And freedom now has become more of an ultimate value instead of a, a value that, that gets us to a certain point where we're allowed to freely worship. But because freedom is so important, uh, I feel that w- when there's a critique uh, against Christianity or against Calvinism or against the uh, view of God that says that I, we are not free, then I, I feel that on a on a foundational level of of my worldview, um, even if it may not be completely aligned with Scripture, that's a process, right? That's sort of the background that that we exist in, and and that's. That, that you just have to accept that. But when I look at scripture, I don't see that. I don't understand. And this has been a slow process. I don't understand why freedom is held up so much, especially when, um, for example, people talk about my will. Well, on it, I don't want, you know, what is, what is Christ pray? Not my will, but thy will be done. Like we, we we want to be conformed into a different image. I don't want my desires. If my desires aren't correct, I want my desires to be conformed to the desires of God. I want want God's will for my life, not my will, because I know that in the ultimate sense, his will is better than my will. And if so, and and you know, you know that the Molinists would say this is true. Of course they want God's will. Of course they think that their will is fallen. So then why defend a system that seems to shift the, the precedence away from God's will over my life and over the life of the world that that puts the impetus on man's will and on my will. I, I just don't understand that from a Christian perspective. I understand it from a cultural perspective, and I have to fight against it myself, but I don't see it in Scripture. Yeah, and and there's actually—I talked about this on last episode—there's there's direct contradiction. So I know Romans 9 is like the go-to, uh, but Romans 9, starting at verse 16, says, So then it does not depend on the man who wills, or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the Scriptures say to Pharaoh— For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires." Right? So, so it's so it's God's will, it's God's desire who is hardened and, and who who He has mercy on. There, that that there's there's a corollary between those two things. Um, it, it's 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 based on God's will who He has mercy on, and it's based on God's will who's hardened against that mercy. And and the thing that I always point out, and I haven't, I, I honestly, I know I know there's a lot of Arminians that do a lot of um, you know somersaults to this verse. I have not heard a good response to this objection. Maybe someone from the audience will give it. But to me, the only way that the the next objection, that the interlocutor that 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 Paul is is imagining that he's debating with, the only understanding that that objection makes any sense is if the objector is saying, okay. You're saying that God is sovereign and that it's not based on our wills, that God chooses who to have mercy on, that God chooses who is hardened against him, that God chooses who's saved and who's reprobate. You, I, I, you know, Paul, you're saying that, but then in that case, how can God condemn us, right? That, that's the question. So it says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Right, that that's the question that follows. That's the objection that Paul is getting. The objection of the Molinist, the objection of the semi-Pelagian, the objection of the, the Arminian is the objection that Paul is answering. And that's the only sense really that that question makes sense because it's saying directly, you're okay, if you're saying God is that sovereign, then how can there still be human culpability, human responsibility for our sin? 
Right? That's the only way that that question really makes sense. And Paul directly rejects it and directly answers it. We don't have to get into, we don't have to get the answer here. But, but my point is, is that I, I don't know if I want to be on the side where my view hinges on the objection that someone is posing against Paul. So getting back to the Pelagianism, this, this is connected. Uh, Pelagianism basically said that in order for, for, for us to be responsible, we have to, in a sense, be able, right? So in order for God to hold us responsible for choosing sin, we have to be able to choose or not choose sin. Um, we're sort of a blank slate that, that can choose whether or not to sin. The, the, the fall has not touched us so dramatically that we're not able to do that. What is semi-Pelagianism? Semi-Pelagianism is basically, um, look, we're, 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 you know, we're not dead in our sins. We're really, really, really sick. We can't heal ourselves, right? Um, we, you know, it, it's not the position that, that we can, that we can save ourselves that, you know, cause Pelagianism is all out. Like you could be perfect. You could, you could avoid condemnation. Semi-Pelagianism is saying, no, no, you're, you're sick. You, you can't save yourself. You can't do it on your own. God needs to be the one that, that saves you and rescues you. But... Um, you are not dead in your sins. You 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 can freely choose uh, to to act in repentance and, and faith, uh, and and you can you can freely choose uh, God that way, um, and you can do things then that are pleasing to God um, out of your out of your original nature. You're you're not you're not dead into God. Um, so it, it, it's much more, it's much uh, more closely rated, you know, kind of more tightly knit um, uh, synergism um, than than Pelagianism is all out Pelagianism. Okay, now so you say semi Pelagianism as if it's a bad thing, uh, but that to me seems like that's the pretty standard position of evangelicalism in America right now. Yeah, so I, so this is this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna come out of the closet. And I'm gonna flat out say that I think Arminianism uh, is semi Pelagianism. I think Roman Catholicism is semi Pelagianism. Uh, I think it's a heretical view. I don't necessarily mean that that I think that that person is unsaved, um, but I think it is it is uh, 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 at the very least a heterodox view. Um, but I think likely um, a heretical view as well. Okay, so. Why does Molinism lead to that view? Simply because the assumption is that we, in certain circumstances, are able to choose God, so it, it definitionally is semi-Pelagian? That's part of it, but again, going going all the way back, that I think it rever- I think it's actually stronger than that because I think it reverses the causal arrow, um, e- even even to a, to a sharper degree. Because I think um, again, it's God looking down and seeing who would be saved, and 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 it, it's it's I'm included. You know, if God if God saw, foresaw my faith, I'm included. My my faith is part of the reason why God chose and determined to create this world, and therefore determined uh, that I would be saved in this world. And so it's my, my faith is the, the causal arrow that leads God to then save us. Um, it, it's, not, it's not the other way around where God uh, determines you, to save us first. Do you think that Molinists would accept that? I, I think that that's absolutely true when you look at their system, but would they accept that? Uh, I don't think so. So th- this is also where, and, and we'll kind of get to this as we go through, uh, I think a lot of Molinists are inconsistent. I think a lot of Molinists don't take, in the same way I think Arminians don't take, I, I, I don't think a lot of Arminians are semi-Pelagianism, are, are semi-Pelagian. I don't think they take their system to the logical end. Um, so I, I think Molinism is, uh, do, does lead to that. I just don't think people develop it all the way out. 
I also think tangentially, there's a problem here with a doctrine called the aseity of God, which basically that, go ahead. Well, God God is self-sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't learn from, he's not affected by, and that doesn't mean, you know, when you use those words uh, commonly, yeah, of course God has affections, but he's not, like, he can't be causally determined to do things by us outside of his own will. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, that, that. That's a whole different different topic that we can get into because you do have the the um, the, the passage in the Old Testament where God you know sees and, and relents of what He had planned to do, and you have you have some of these other some of these other issues that happen um, there. I, you know, I, I don't think we want to go down that road, but I do think you know before we can continue down, uh, I have another side note on here that that I think actually Molinism, and, and this might actually be true of Arminianism as well. Um, I think Molinism uh, almost requires a kind of deism if it's going to avoid compatibilism. We'll, we'll talk. We'll talk a little bit later about why Molinism actually, if it's going to be consistent and it's going to avoid uh, open theism, it's actually going to run headlong into the compatibilism that it denies in the first place. Um, but I actually think to avoid that, it requires deism, and and here's why: because it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird um, position. So deism is the position. Kind of the kind of the, the watchmaker. It's the God who it's the God who winds it up and lets it go, right? And, and it isn't really intimately involved in creation as it goes, right? The absentee so, landlord. Yeah, the absentee landlord, right? So so you know, and, and it's th- this could be you know there might be Molinists that but that might not go down this route, but I think there's a lot, and and um, I've I've asked this question these questions a lot of times, and I and I do get this result. Um, so, so I, does does God know that the sun is not going to blow up today? Right. Most Molinists are going to say, well, you know, if if it's not going to blow up today, God has the true knowledge that it's not going to blow up today. Does God control the molecules of the sun? Right. So, so molecules are not volitional things. Right. They don't have a will. So God can control the molecules of the sun um, without uh, violating anybody's will. Right? And most Molinists are going to say yes, because they want to be theists, right? They don't want to be deists. So they want to say, well, no, God interacts with his creation. But if he can't do it by violating the will, how else does he do it? Well, maybe it's, you know, God determined, God, God influences what I do because, you know, he, he makes sure that a tree gets knocked down on my path. And so therefore I have to, you know, lead, it's a whole like sliding doors movie thing, right? So, so God, God, you know, can control the molecules, uh, but maybe not violate my will. Here's where it gets tricky, right? In examples, so you have to remember, you, you have Molinists and, and Arminians who are going to say, well, Calvinism, you know, makes God a moral monster because he causes, um, he causes sin uh, and things like that to happen. What molecules and atoms does God control and decree and which ones doesn't he, right? So, so does, does, does God give me the food poisoning um, that I got last week? Right, because because it's part of creation, right? How how my it's it's not my will uh, to 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 be sick to to have a negative response to this food or to you know to know that this you know this food was was uh, kept out overnight or something like that at, at what otherwise is normally a really good restaurant. I've been there a thousand times. Um, you know, it, it's not my volition. It's not my stomach's volitional choice to get sick. Um, does God control those molecules, right? Um, to to influence what I'm gonna do. Right. Well, what if that food poisoning caused me to be in such a bad mood that I lashed out and sinned against my family? Is God, therefore, the author of that sin? 
right? I know that's kind of like a long trail of cause and effect, but that 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 really is what this leads to. So if you're going to say, well, God isn't going to isn't going to violate my will, right? But he's going to do things that are going to force me to act in a certain way. Um, or, or influence me to act in a certain way because he knows I'll choose this way given this certain circumstance. It's like he, he, he paints off all the exits so you can only go down this one path to accomplish. Am I really free in that case? Um, well, to me, it seems like no. I mean, I'm not really free because then I don't really have the free alternative choice. And so the only way to avoid that type of compatibilism where, yeah, I'm free, but I really have no choice to choose otherwise, I'm acting, but it's compatible with the will of God because he's really hedging off my options so that I have to go down the route that he's forcing me to go down. Um, the only way to avoid that would be a God who isn't involved, isn't directing, isn't intervening whatsoever. That is the God of deism. Um, so I think you have those types of logical problems as well. That seems to me absolutely like a quantitative difference and not a qualitative difference when it comes to intervening in, in, in the world. They say, oh, he won't touch your will. He'll leave your will free, but he'll manipulate circumstances so that he still gets the outcome that he wants. Yeah, which, which again, isn't libertarian freedom, right? So, so the point of libertarian freedom is I have to have the real choice to do otherwise, Right, I, I have to really be able to choose to act differently, and so if so, it, it is a it is a qualitative difference. But if God is but if God is acting in such a way so that I don't have a choice to do anything different, if if everything happens so that I can only you know act in this in this one or these few ways um, that God has that God has allowed, then I don't have libertarian freedom anyways. Right, I only have compatibilistic a type of compatibilistic freedom. It's not reform compatible. Compatibilism, but it is a type of compatibilism, nonetheless, because I'm not libertarian free. My options are limited by the 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 impingement of someone else's will upon my life. Well, right? it, yeah, it seems like they bite that the second that God chooses to actualize a world, He has then decided all of the choices that we are going to make because He chose to actualize this particular world in which I make this particular decision. Now, the fact that He did it through manipulating circumstances, knowing my nature, to me seems to 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 not really be to be a distinction without a difference between our view, which is that he gave me a nature and works through that nature to achieve his ends, versus them, which would be... But see, this is where I don't even understand the concept. Honestly, I don't... When you get down to the roots, I don't understand the concept of libertarian free will, because people will say things like, well, it's contra-causal freedom. Well, what is that? Every every choice has a cause. Like, there can be no contra-causal choice, even if I'm just... Picking at random, I, I chose to pick at random. That's my, why did I choose uh, this stick out of the hat? Well, because I stuck my hand in and did. Like, I don't understand how you can have choices that don't have causes. And then if you're a rational being, I don't understand how you can make choices that aren't rooted in your nature. And then at that point, if God didn't give me my nature, who gave me my nature? And if God gave me my nature, and if God set me in a world where he knows that these circumstances will force me or by my nature in these circumstances, I will choose this decision. I functionally do not see the difference between that and compatibilism. Yeah. And, and, and this is a point that I make all the time that, look, I, you know, you and I, we're not free to act like dolphins. I mean, we could pretend to act like dolphins, but we are not free to actually act as a real dolphin. Why? Because we have human natures, right? And, and where, as you said, who gave us our nature if it's not for God? Well, I mean, under, under Reformed compatibilism, 
God determines not all just our hum- our human nature, but whether we are you know still dead in our sins or we're we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. God determines uh, that for us. He determines that type of nature. Right, it's this, it's the same thing, right? So so and and I think I I think we we can transition to your objection because uh, I think mine is a, a little bit more more vague on the the requirement of deism. I think it's an important point, but yours what you what you're getting to is is the much more robust problem that that if God looks down and and, and says, okay, I want to actualize you know this this world number five thousand seven hundred twenty eight where these particular people um, do you know the, these are the these are the free choices these this is the exhaustive list of all the free choices that these people do in this world, I'm now going to actualize that world, right? Once that world is actualized, you have two problems. Am I really free? Right? Can I do something other than what God foreknew I would do in choosing this world? Can I do anything different than what I, what God foresaw, for, for, foreknew that I would do in this world once He actualizes it, and the answer on Molinism is it, it's bizarre. It's yes, but you won't, <laughs> right? But if you go back to the to to that to that Arminian uh, Arminian dictum, the the Pelagian dictum, that that for me to be truly free, I have to have the ability to do differently, right? If if I if I could not do different, I might have the will to do different. But if I if if there's no possible way that I would actually choose differently in that world, I'm not sure that I'm free. Okay, work this through. So we talked about it. The root cause. I, I don't think that their libertarian free will is incompatible with God creating us, right? And then so at the moment of choosing. What you're saying is, in, in according to libertarian free will, at the moment of a choice, I have the freedom to choose yes or no, to choose opposite things, to choose different things. Yes. But if God has already set this in, in, in motion, and not only set this in motion, God already knows what my choice is going to be, then I cannot actually choose other than what God knows I will choose. Correct. So, so we have to keep two concepts in mind. Right, we have to remember that that God's foreknowledge, right, and this is this is true under under uh, Reformed theology, Arminian. This is true in other ones. God's foreknowledge is is what's called causally effete. Um, God, God's foreknowledge does not determine actions. God, God's God's foreknowledge is not causal. It doesn't it doesn't bring about states of affairs. So so the fact that God foreknows what's going to happen. His foreknowledge isn't what causes it. On Reformed theology, it's his decrees. Under Molinism, it's his acting in, in actualizing this world, right? But all of us are going to say that his foreknowledge doesn't determine the action, right? So, so, the, so once God's on, on Molinism, if God foreknows that I'm going to do X, his foreknowledge can't determine that I'm going to do X, Right, so then my question is: Can I do otherwise? Can I do something other than what God foresaw that I would do? And this leads to to a couple problems. The first thing: If the Molinist wants to say yes, that I could do otherwise, this is where it's going to lead to open theism. Because if I could do otherwise than what God foresaw, because He no longer would foreknow, He would now foresee. God can't. He categorically cannot have true knowledge of the future, 
but only reasonable beliefs. Even if he's right 100% of the time, it's not knowledge, it's belief, because he has to get to that point in time to know if I actually do in this world freely choose to do it. Because if I have libertarian freedom, I could choose otherwise, right? So, so this could be the world. God could have actualized a world where he, for, where he foresaw that I would do X, but at the time that X came about, I freely chose to do not X because I had real freedom. And in that case, that has to be possible. And so therefore, God cannot have knowledge. He ha- he maybe has true belief. He maybe, you know, he has he has reasonable beliefs where he, he he's right 100% of the time, but that's not knowledge. God still needs to arrive at that moment in time to find out for sure that in this world I choose X, right? That's a that's a kind of soft open theism where as history unfolds, God learns that his beliefs actually do come to pass, that our actions do finally confirm his beliefs. So you said that's a soft version of open theism. Why soft? It's soft because it's because it's kind of you know God, they they could say well God God foresees everything and he's right a hundred percent of the time and 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 all this kind of stuff. Open theism is really uh, once you get into like hard open theism, you get into you know the 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 people who are intending to affirm open theism. They're actually saying well well you know. God, God has no knowledge of the future, and he's, he, you know, he's, he's learning everything as it goes, as it unfolds, and he's not actually sure what's going to happen as it unfolds, and all that kind of stuff. So, th- this, th- you know, I'm, I'm not trying to say that they, that they're that they're adopting all out open theism, but it is a form of of soft open theism where God actually needs to confirm what he foreknows or what he foresaw um, in this actual world because otherwise, because I could actually choose different uh, than what he foresaw. Yeah. And then that, that also assumes that we are rational and predictable, which would assume that we act in accordance with our nature. Because if we don't act in accordance with our nature, then we're irrational. And if we're irrational, then how could God possibly know what our choices are going to be? Because there would be no rational basis for predicting them. Yeah, and you and that's exactly right. And you you actually again going back to that kind of weird non-biblical anthropology, you actually have more problems with this because if we think, well, why why on Molinism does God foreknow what we would do? Right? Why would the Molinists say that he, he foreknows what we do? Oh, well, because he knows us better than we know, and and he creates us and all this kind of stuff. Okay, well, God creates us in our nature, so therefore. He determines our nature that determines what we would do in those situations, right? It's, it's, it's like cutting off the nose to spite the face. They, they want to get away from these, these, these you know, concepts of compatibilism and determinism and all this kind of stuff. All they're doing is, is shoving it way down the line in different ways, in ad hoc ways, and with these weird metaphysical assumptions that are just entirely not necessary, that lead to all these other problems of semi-Pelagianism and open theism. So, like, at what cost do we even want to go down that road? So, uh, most of the proponents, in fact, I'd say all. I've never met a Molinist who wasn't uh, an Orthodox Christian. Uh, I've never met one who would openly affirm open theism, for example. Uh, Since they are within the pale of Orthodoxy, is it not the case that someone who follows Molinism and strives to be biblically consistent is really holding a view that is, by definition, compatibilistic. Um, they're just using different language to explain it and have some uh, f- some faulty assumptions about God's decrees versus 
choosing one out of a, a billion worlds. Functionally, functionally, is this not just compatibilism? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is functionally compatibilism, right? So, which, which again, I think because they hold it in an inconsistent way, it defaults to compatibilism. Once you're consistent, I think you're either at semi-Pelagianism or open theism, right? But, but if, but the way that most Molinists hold it, I don't think is compatible. So, so again, so if if you said yes that in that in that possible world I am actually free, then it leads that soft open theism. So, what's the other option? Well, you can say no. Uh, that that in some sense, even if I have a, a, a you know a you know a choice, it's not the libertarian sense, right? My my decisions are conditioned based on the world in which God foresaw and actualized, right? It, it was God's actions, it was God's determining will that chose uh, you know that created me in such a way that put me in this world that actualized this world uh, that de- that determined what I would freely choose, and so therefore. God, you know, created the situation. He set it up. He, he put me in that situation. Therefore, he knows everything so well, so in and out that he knows uh, what, what, you know, I, I would do in every single given circumstance, all that kind of stuff. That's compatibilism, right? So, so if you're going to hold it that way, that just is compatibilism. You, you've given up your libertarian sense of freedom of the will in the first place to defend Molinism, which is an attempt to defend libertarian freedom, right? So it's just, it's just inconsistent at that point. Okay, so... I think that we've pretty well teased out some of the problems with the assumptions and the system of Molinism itself. My question would be then, since this today is largely used to get around the problem of evil and to get God off of the hook for causing evil, uh, let's just assume that, that, let's just assume that these problems that we've described with Molinism ontologically are not there. Does Molinism actually answer the question of the problem of evil? No, that so it's sort think, of designed to, yeah, yeah. It's suppo- that I mean, that's that's the big application of this, right? So that that that's why. And by the way, that's why Molinism is so so uh, you know adored in in apologetical circles, right? You you probably would go to your average person at church and they would have no clue what you're talking about, right? But Molinism is big in apologetics, and I don't think it's really that helpful. I did an episode on Calvinism as apologetic, where I think I gave better responses to the problem of evil and the problem of suffering and, and all of that kind of stuff. So, so the example, so most of us have heard the chainsaw example, right? This is, that's normally given by atheists who, who object to Christianity because they want to object to a sovereign God, right? And so they're going to say, you know, imagine, imagine a father who turns on a chainsaw and leaves it in a room with a toddler, Right. Is that a morally good person, right? Um, the, the, the problem that's supposed to come about is, um, and they're going to they're gonna turn this into, you know, objections against Christianity. They're going to say, okay, well, if God, you know, knew that there would be rape and that there would be murder and there would be all this kind of, you know, all this kind of stuff, right, is, is God a good God, Um and on Molinism, the answer is, well, um, you know, God might have allowed it, but it's to get this this better good uh, of, of human freedom, right? Human freedom is the chainsaw, basically. Um, it, you know, the the it sounds weird to say the chainsaw is the better option. It's kind of where the analogy breaks down. But but you know, human 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 freedom is is of such a good that all these negative outcomes um, are 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 of of a higher benefit. Um, I just don't buy it. I, I, I just don't believe, I mean, even as a Christian, you might have had this experience. How many times have you actually prayed to God to bind your will? 
right? To stop sinning, right? You, you, you recognize that in this case, binding my will, that if God actually took away my will in this aspect, it would be better than for me to keep freely sinning, right? Have you ever had that experience? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we even sing about it, right? Bind my wandering heart to thee. Yeah, I mean, most of us, most of us have this, right? This is this is uh, you know Paul's, um, you know, I do the thing that I don't want to do, and I don't do the thing that I do want to do, right? It's that it's that anguish of you know I don't I don't actually want to be willful in this situation. I wish my will what was 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 bound. I wish that I wasn't actually freely choosing what I want to do right now because what I want to do is sin, and it would be better for me if God actually violated my will right now. That's what I would want. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually, I just don't buy the Molinist and the Arminian rhetoric on this um, whatsoever. So I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Well, uh, I mean, let's let's not choose rape. Rape is always the example we go to, right? For rape, for for evil, uh, and there's a reason we do. It's it's horrible. I just don't like talking about rape. Yeah. Um, let's go with theft. Let's take something much simpler. Theft. Uh, say I have, I, I need a, this was true when I lived in Russia, you couldn't use credit cards for things. So I bought a plane ticket and it cost me a thousand five hundred dollars. And that was basically all the money I had in my, uh, in my checking account. I withdrew it all from an ATM. I put it all in an envelope in my pocket and got on the Metro in St. Petersburg, Russia. And I was literally looking around thinking these people have no idea that if they were to mug me right now, they would take everything that I own and their monthly salary for five months. So like, you know, this was a fear of mine when I lived in Russia, just one of many. Uh, let's say I did get mugged. Let's say I did get mugged on the way and I got that money taken away. I now had no money. Not only did I have no money for an airplane ticket, um, but I had no money at all. I wouldn't be able to buy food. Now that I would consider evil, right? Uh, sure, you can probably look back. Well, what if he needed the money more than me and blah, blah, blah. Fine. I just got mugged. I was physically accosted. My money is taken from me. But you know what? That's not important. What's important is that that mugger had the freedom to choose whether to mug me and steal my last money. Yeah. Does that make any sense at all? No. And and this is this is where um, and this is where we can sh- shift to kind of you know and 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 you know inner uh, ecumenical debate between Molinists and, and Calvinists because the Molinists. So the the example I give is imagine that you're speaking to you know, the father of a, of someone, um, you know, whose child has died a horrible death, right? Maybe, maybe it's the, the willful action of someone else. What are the two responses, right? The, the, the reformed theology view is that while it's painful, right? We can know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, right? There's a purpose, there's a plan, there's redemptive value. It will bring glory to God somehow. There's a reason, even if we don't know it, even if we don't observe it, God allowed this to happen. God decreed, actually decreed this to happen. It's all part of God's plan. And we can rest assured in the sovereign love of God that it's not pointless, right? That's that's the reformed um Kind of pastoral response to it. It might be. It might be hard. It's a lot of tears. Uh, but 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 we know that it's not pointless, um, right? The Molinist is going to come and say, "Well, well, how awful." I mean, I mean, you're 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 talking about you know a God who would put this father and this child through this this horrible thing. What just because God has a plan? Right, that that's terrible. That makes God that makes God a monster. He decreed this horrible thing to happen. God is the author then uh, of of that sin. Okay, what is the answer on Molinism and Arminianism? Right, if you had to take a truth pill, right, and they had to tell the truth, 
what's the answer? The answer then is that there's no purpose, right? There's no plan because that would mean that God was somehow causally engaged in the activity of that human's choice, that murderer's choice or whatever. That, that, that can't be, but it can't violate the, 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 the plan that's being activated is that, is that that murderer, their will was important. That's the plan that's being activated, right? And God, God isn't actually doing anything, right? That's deism. That, that's actually almost atheism, right? God didn't will it. He didn't plan it. He didn't foreordain it. There, there's, there's, there's no good purposes that are coming out of, about it. In fact, God could have stopped it, right? He has the power to stop it. God's omnipotent. Most, most uh, you know, well, all Molinists I know are going to say God's omnipotent. He has the power to stop it. He has the power to override our will, Right, he did it with Nebuchadnezzar. He did it with Pharaoh. Right, he has the power. So why doesn't he? Right, why why doesn't he turn all bullets in into even if he wants to protect our will? Why doesn't he turn all bullets into marshmallows? Right, he 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 has the the way that God has ordered this world under Molinist scheme. Every action doesn't necessarily have redemptive value. Right, there could be actions that are just the necessary byproduct of humans having the freedom of the world. There might be some actions that have redemptive value, but there might be some. This is this is the mystery on Molinism, right? Because remember, the purpose of Molinism is to bring the most people to salvation, right? Maybe to give God the most glory, but to bring most people to salvation. That doesn't mean that everything that happens in this world is directly related to bringing someone to salvation, right? So this, it might be that this world is the type of confluence that, that, that brings most people freely to salvation, but nowhere in there does that necessitate that every single negative outworking of the will is directly tied to bringing someone to salvation. There could literally be utterly pointless and gratuitous evils that are just byproducts of this world being actualized, which is appalling. Uh, it, it It is appalling. And this is, I fully agree with you, by the way. I think the Reformed view has the best apology. One, I think it's biblical. Two, I think it has the best apologetic for the problem of evil. And, and that is that this there is a reason and a purpose and we may not know it, but this happened for a reason. This did not. This is not something that God could have stopped, but allowed and allowed for no reason whatsoever. And if they want to come back and say, "Well, no, 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 God didn't ordain it, but God allowed it to happen, and He's going to redeem it. He's going to work through." Well, again, that's a distinction without a difference. At the point where God could have stopped something but allowed it to happen and is going to use it for some sort of redemptive end, once again, now you just have, that's the Calvinistic answer in different language, in different words. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it it makes God, it strips God of the sovereignty to give humans the the, the sovereignty, right? God, God, God sees what's going to happen in this case of this, of this child being killed. God sees what's going to happen, but does nothing to stop it. Even though he could, but because the human will is autonomous and sovereign, God doesn't want to violate the freedom, and so he limits his own freedom to act, right? That's the logical outworking of Molinism. Yeah, and in a sense, too, he's uh, he's submitting his own will to our wills. Now, they may say, no, no, the grams, he is submitting his will to our wills because he values our wills. Well, okay, fine, but at, at the end of the day, our will is still higher in that equation. Yeah, the, and, and that's absolutely true. And again, we can go back to, 
at the end of the day, he values our will so much that he, you know, subjugates his will to ours. But again, at what cost? Right? What does that cost us? We, we've seen that that gets us to, to, to either open theism or semi-Pelagianism or an inconsistent view where you're getting to compatibilism anyways. So why even give up God's sovereignty in the first place when you don't need to? Right? So it's like giving up sovereignty in the first place to get to com- compatibilism when you could just start with sovereignty and compatibilism without sacrificing any of it, without going through all these weird metaphysical hula hoops. Why do you think so? Why do you think this is the case? Why does so? Why are so many people drawn to this? Is it because uh, and one? Why are so many people drawn to it? And two? Do you know anyone who is a classical Calvinist slash Reformed who is also a Molinist? I don't. I don't. I so the the answer that I give is I honestly I don't know why. I mean I think I. I mean, the, I think people think that it's true. I think people think that it's the best, uh, you know, apologetic. I, 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 I can't find any biblical warrant for it. I can't find any biblical warrant for, for you know, the, the, you know, humans as these little building blocks that God is stuck with, that he has to do the best that he can. I don't find biblical warrant for all these possible worlds. I don't find biblical warrant for God limiting his sovereignty. I mean, the, the exact opposite is the case throughout the entire, throughout the entirety of the Bible, directly stated in Romans 9. I don't find any biblical warrant for it whatsoever. What I find is that they think that it has apologetical value, and so they work backwards through that system. And so then they have to come to these texts, and they have to try to eisegete it, and they have to show, oh, well— you know, here in Matthew, uh, where Jesus says, you know, if, if Corazon had, had, you know, witnessed what they were witnessing, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes and all this kind of stuff. And says, see, Jesus has, has true counterfactual knowledge. Okay, fine. No one denies middle knowledge. I mean, you, you can point me at passages where there's middle knowledge. Fine. I don't see any other warrant for any of this other metafictual structures that are placed over it. Um, so I don't, I don't know why... Biblically, anyone would believe believe it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I just, I don't. Frankly, if I were just choosing philosophical systems, I'd rather go with open theism. It's more consistent. It's easier to defend. Yeah, and I mean, it's... So, I, I you know, we've we, we got to start wrapping up here uh, in a second, but... Um, I have a friend, and I put this. I put this on kind of the, those notes that I gave you. I have a friend who, a long time ago, was, was tempted to open theism. It was kind of when open theism was first coming out, um, kind of coming out at the popular level. Um, it's been around for a while, um, and he went on a missions trip to, I think it was Australia. Um, and there, there was an incident where a bunch of the youth workers were on a bus, and there was an accident, and I think about a dozen of them died, right? And so it was this problem of suffering that came about. And, and he was, you know, he was thinking, how could this be God's plan, right? How could you have all these youth workers going out, going, you know, across the country to try to minister to, to the, Abori- I think it was the aboriginals, um, you know, to share the gospel with them and to die tragically on, on a bus crash? Like, 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 how could God predestine that and still be good? Right, and so he was tempted towards a kind of uh, open theism, and then he went towards kind of a, a Molinism, if I remember right. Um, and the idea was that well, well, God, God wouldn't, you know, directly predestine that because that would make God the author of evil, which I, I think I answered um, uh, on the last episode. But, but that, you know, so he was tempted this way, and I brought it to him, and I said, okay, well, let's let's put that on the back burner for a second, and, and let me ask you, what's the alternative? 
right? What's, what, what, what's the alternative? If God doesn't predestine, if he doesn't have a plan for it, right? If there's no redemptive value for this, what does that mean? That means that you have an omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent God, potentially, sitting there watching all of it unfold and doesn't do anything, right? It's not part of his decree. It's not part of his plan, and so, and so surely while this bus is crashing, right, while, while this accident is happening, God is smart enough to calculate the trajectories, right, on open theism, or he, or he knows who's going to die. He knows the impact of the bodies uh, if, if you're going to do it on kind of a, a Molinist. He knows who's going to die, and he, or at least he could figure it out on open theism, right, if he doesn't have absolute knowledge. So why at that point? If he doesn't have a predetermined plan that's bringing out, there's no redemptive value, why doesn't he choose to intervene and save their life, right? I just, I, I, don't, I don't understand how there could be an answer to that. Um, I, in fact, I think, there, I think there's direct biblical contradiction. I think in Genesis 50, 20, where, where, where um, uh, Joseph you know, is, is confronting his brothers. And he says, look, you, you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He uses the same word. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good, right? It, it, it's not that there's some alternative where God has no plan, no purpose. It's no, God, God planned this. This is God's intention for you to do this. He intended this to happen. He decreed that this would happen, and you are freely choosing out of your dead nature to sin along with him. Right? That that that's the outcome. So so on open theism, a Molinism, where, where God isn't intending it, he isn't planning it, he isn't he isn't pre you know predestining and decreeing that this would be happening for redemptive value, right? That God of open theism, that God of Molinism is either entirely impotent to stop it, or I don't see how he can be all good, right? That seems malevolent to me. Where if it's not decreed, it's not planned, it's not part of his good purpose, it doesn't have a redemptive outcome. I don't see how he couldn't stop it. I would stop it as a human, right? It would be morally good for me to stop it. If I could stop it, if I could stop someone from being shot and killed, I should do that because I don't know if there's going to be redemptive value, right? If God knows that there's not going to be redemptive value for that action, he should stop it, right? The thing that keeps on the reform view, the thing that keeps God from stopping it is that there's redemptive value. That there's Christ on the cross, uh, that that His blood covers over the atonement uh, of, of of those sins for for the elect, right? That that is the culmination of the plan. There is intent. There is a purpose for all these sins, or those sins receive the justice of God to show us that God gets the glory for being just, right? There there is there is part of a plan to all of those things. That just you just don't have those resources on open theism or Molinism or Arminianism. Well, I'm convinced. <laughs> Well, I try. Um, so why don't we start wrapping up? Owen, is there, is there anything else you had about, um, about Molinism? You know, just a side question. You kept saying true knowledge throughout this discussion, true knowledge, and I'm guessing that's some sort of term in the debate. I don't understand. What, what is true knowledge and why do you have to specify true knowledge? Um, it's, it's a little bit redundant, actually, at that point. No, uh, it, it, God wouldn't have, he wouldn't have knowledge, right? We're, we're going to say that you, you, you know something in, in kind of the theological sense, right? There's the philosophical sense of, of knowledge where it's, you know, warranted true belief. I don't, have to, I don't have to know that I know. But if you're omniscient and you have all true knowledge, right, part of that, 
um, is, is, you know, kind of a non-vicious infinite regress where if you're omnipotent, you know that you know, and you know that you know that you know, and you know that you know that you know that you know, and so on and so forth. On Molinism, again, God can't know that he knows, right? He could have justified true belief. And so in that sense, he could have philosophical knowledge in that sense. But he can't have omniscience because he can't know that he knows until the time come about where my actions actually confirm his knowledge, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And throughout this discussion also, I was thinking, and this comes from the sort of Arminian discussion, but, you know, God is the chess master. And even if he doesn't determine what moves I play, he's so much better at chess than I am that, of course, he's going to win. Like if Gary Kasparov is obviously going to beat me, then how much more is God going to beat me in chess? I I get that. I totally understand it. But at a certain point, he doesn't know what move I'm going to make. Right. Right. Uh, So but I mean, he knows that he can beat my move. Fine. Uh, I just, I honestly, I really don't see the value after, I don't see the value in trying to defend the system. I think it's a worse apologetic. And I, I, I just think it falls apart when you actually look at libertarian free will, the way that they want to have it and the way that they create the world so that they can have it. It just doesn't, it, it, it's inconsistent. Yeah. I, I would love to hear a response to that critique from, uh, from an Arminian on libertarian free will or from a Molinist. I, I just haven't heard one yet that dealt with that sufficiently. And it seems to me that if you take that out, the whole system falls apart. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree. And, and, and I'm hoping, um, you know, I've, I've had Rob Johnson of Apologetics 315 on the show. I've talked to other um, Molinists. Um, we're kind of taking on the sacred cow in apologetics of, of you know, disagreeing with, with William Lane Craig. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that there that there is a much more robust discussion um, around this that follows. You know, we, we will we'll, we'll probably have some um, some articles or at least some some, you know, blog posts or something on this. Hopefully there's some episodes that come up in response to this. Um, but, you know, I would I would love to hear a Molinist really take the head on response to these. But because every time I talk to a Molinist and I ask them on Molinist, can I freely choose to do something other than what God knows? They always say, yes, but you won't. <laughs> you know, I, I have another observation. I have found that typically the Molinists do not want to actually debate this with other Christians. I, I know a couple personally and they no, I won't debate that. I, I won't talk about it. Well, why not? Yeah, I know. I know some that do. Right again, Rob Johnson's been on here to talk about it. Um, so there, there, there are some. Um, but I, you know, I, I just I don't think that they that they get into some of these um, really problematic areas. And again, it's just it just comes down to assertion of of yes, you could, but no, you won't. Right. Well, <laughs> at that point, if I if if you know that I won't. <laughs> then I'm not sure that I can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it, you know, it's just, uh, it, it's just that type of inconsistency that I've just, I, I've literally just never heard a good answer to. Okay. And quick clarification, Rob Johnson, it's apologetics 105. I oh, think apologi- 315 is a different apologetics. Yeah, apolog- yeah, 315 is apologetics 105. Sorry. Sorry, Rob. Apologetics 105. Um, great, great on other things. Go check it out. Apologetics 105. He has some really good stuff on there. Um, this is just one area where we fundamentally disagree. 
Um, so Owen, uh, thank you so much for coming on um, for this part two, which really, I, I probably should have released this as part one before I responded to William Link. <laughs> if you're listening to this, now that you've listened to this, go back and listen to the other episode again um, and, and work your way through some of those some of those comments. So uh, uh, Owen, thank you so much again for coming on. How can, uh, I know a lot of my listeners know you from uh, the Chris's Victor Network, which I'm on uh, with you, but how can uh, my audience find some of your work um, and, and what are you what are you working on right now? Yeah, the best would be uh, Ask a Millennial Christian is the the podcast that I'm putting most of my effort into right now. We have a Facebook group. Go to Facebook, Ask a Millennial Christian. Just trying to, it's sort of two-pronged. One is uh, the perspective of millennials. And it almost, it started out kind of as a joke, just trying to play off of keywords. Like, you know, the media loves to publish articles about what quote, millennials think and millennial Christians as if they're some uniform group. And we just sort of wanted to offer a minority report on that. So we deal with a lot of cultural issues facing millennials like uh, the workplace, education, um, just jobs in general. And then we also deal with, uh, just, you know, theological things that the church has been dealing with for, for millennia. Um, to show that there is consistency and uniformity here and that just because there's a lot of, you know, post-evangelical millennials doesn't mean mean all millennials are like that. So even if you're not a millennial, we'd love to have you involved in that discussion. We just wanted to uh, add a particular, a particular voice to this overwhelming stream that's in the mainstream. Uh, other than that, uh, I have a, a podcast on The Walking Dead that I hope to resurrect, <laughs> no, no pun intended, soon when the, when the new season comes out. But for all you carnal people. Christians that watch shows on zombies. Yes, for all of you carnal Christians who, aren't, uh, who are only being saved uh, as if through the fire, barely. <laughs> Uh, so there's that one. And then you're also a co-host on another uh, another podcast as of late, um, which is an excellent show. Why don't you tell us about that one as well? Yeah, thank you, actually. So there's a, a show called Semper Reformanda Radio, and it's on the Bible Thunk thumping wingnut network and so if you if you're gonna find it in your podcast search for bible thumping wingnut and then subscribe to that feed there's actually three shows on there they may be adding another one soon and we've been involved a lot recently in the discussion over new covenant theology now a lot of you may not have heard of that it's uh as as a really it's been around since the 70s um but not not in wide perspective like it's you can't really name anyone who's sort of famous in the evangelical world who holds to new covenant theology there may be some who are friendly to it um but it's 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 a way of understanding the covenants and how god relates to us that i think is very important and that's because in general evangelicalism in america which is my stream of christianity is very watered down we don't get taught about the law we don't get taught about covenants we don't get taught about obligations really i, I mean if you were to ask me for most of my christian life um, you know, what, what, what is the relation of Christians lie? I would have said, oh, well, we're covered by the blood and I'm not under the law, which is, which is really antinomian. Like I was functionally an antinomian, even though of course, no Christian's going to say it's okay to cheat on your wife, but oh no, the law has nothing to do with us. And, and that comes from our history and our baggage of fundamentalism of leaving behind doctrine and markers. So it's, it's sort of as Christians are getting awoken to the deeper things of scripture, then they want to find out. And we don't really have a framework for addressing it. And so we've been, my perspective, we've been holding to covenant theology and showing how we believe that is the best exposition of scripture and God's relationship to man. Uh, uh, as opposed to this new covenant theology. So if that's something that interests you at all, or if you don't even know what covenant theology is, I would highly recommend checking out Semper Reformanda Radio. 
And I agree. I agree. You guys should uh, go head over and, and, and check out um, Semper Reformanda and uh, some of the other uh, stuff on tap there uh, at the Bible Thumping Wingnut. Uh, shameless plug for, for those guys over there. Um, we have our disagreements, but we love them uh, nonetheless. Um, all right, Owen, thank you so much for, for coming on, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Bye. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. I hope you appreciated the content here. And like I said in this episode, this really should have been part one if we if I had uh, planned out my schedule correctly. So if you haven't already listened to the previous episode or if you want to listen to it again now that you've heard this one, I recommend going back and listening to my, uh, to my response to William Lane Craig's Q&A on Molinism and Calvinism. Also, why not head back into the archives and check out my episode called Calvinism as an Apologetic. It should really help uh, round out this episode. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, feel free to email me at freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com, visit the blog at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or by finding and joining the discussion at Freedthinker Podcast group page on Facebook. Hopefully, the next time I'll pick up where I left off in my series of misogyny in the Bible, but who knows what might come up between here and there. So in any event, I look forward to seeing you back here again soon. Good night and God bless.